Happiness has become this multi-million dollar industry. How do we make people happy? How do we get happy? If you do a quick search on Amazon, you will find over, uh, I think it was over 300,000 that I saw yesterday, 300,000 products that had happiness in the description or the title, all, all kinds of books uh, from some that are very serious about, for example, happiness now, timeless wisdom for feeling good fast, and the Zen guide to happiness. And then there were some that were a little more fun, I guess, or for example, the Turkish dining experience, recipes for health and happiness. You can find happiness through Turkish dining. Um, I guess maybe so. And then in the, in the home and garden section, there were all kinds of statues of Buddha and magnets and lamps dealing with happiness. Uh, you can even find a shirt that says, happiness is yelling bingo for all you <laughs> bingo enthusiasts out there. Um, some people go to extremes to try to find happiness. Some unhealthy extremes, um, you know, drugs, alcohol, all kinds of promiscuity. And, and you don't have to be a Christian to understand that those, those are, are, are shallow forms of, of, of happiness. They don't really bring that, that satisfaction, uh, that real relief from your troubles. But what can bring you real happiness? Well, real happiness comes from letting the Lord not only be the ruler of your life, but also the counselor and guide of your life as well. If you're opening your Bibles to Psalms chapter 1, Psalms chapter 1, it's a fascinating book. Uh, most of the Psalms are traditionally attributed to David, but uh, a lot of them were written well outside of David's lifetime. The book was, it's, it's 800 years, Psalms are written in an 800-year window from uh, 1100 B.C. to 300 B.C. So at the same time, you have Greece and Rome, their empires rising and falling, uh, and, and Alexander the Great creating his empire, um, the Iliad, the Odyssey, these things are being written. You also have the Psalms being written over in, in Israel. Psalms 1 sets up the entire book of Psalms. It presents two paths, two contrasting paths, the way of the r- wicked and the way of the righteous. And it also highlights the conclusion of these two different paths. The merciful judgment of God on the righteous and the unfortunate but just right, uh, judgment of God on the wicked. So if you will, stand as we read God's holy word this morning. Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray real quick. Dear Lord, I ask you now to be with us in the service. I ask you to uh, use my words, speak through me this morning, Lord. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. The first word in our passage today is blessed. But 
The Hebrew word used there is actually Asher, which is actually a pretty popular baby name uh, currently. And Asher is Hebrew for happy, but not just happy. It's an exaggerated happy. It's very, very ex- happy. It's exuberant. It's joyful. It's it's like, oh, how happy is the man, is how it translates. Um, so happy is what we really need to put in that first word instead of blessed. And happy makes more sense to me than blessed. If you say blessed, in some ways, it's, it's almost like you are treating God like a, a formula, like a cause and effect relationship, like a chemical reaction. Because I am good, then God is going to bless me. And there are some scriptures that you could use to, to back the, up the school of thought. In fact, some very successful ministers have uh, made lifelong careers out of telling people that if they're good, God will send them stuff, right? Health and wealth preachers. And, and we know that that's it's not exactly true, that the, the blessings we get are probably not going to be material blessings. It's probably going to be spiritual blessings in our life, the peace, comfort, all those things. Um, But God is so powerful, and we are so minuscule to even think that God owes us any kind of blessing, regardless of how good we are, is, in my opinion, a little preposterous. I'm reminded of the old Puritan minister Jonathan Edwards and his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in the sermon, Edwards describes how we are just mere spiders hanging by a thread over over the fires of hell. And it's by God's mercy and grace that we even exist. That each breath is given to us directly by God, and the next one may not come. It's scary, and it's not the warm and fuzzy God that we talk about a lot in, 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 in the modern times. Uh, and it's not the God that the bookstores like to sell you. Uh, but the sheer awesomeness and magnitude of God's power should make us fearful. And I mean that in a, in a healthy way. But also bring us comfort that we serve a God that is that powerful. It is through recognition of God's power and authority that we find comfort, that we find peace, because we do serve this being that can do anything and everything. And it's through obedience to God that we find this happiness. Notice in the first verse of chapter 1 tells us that, uh, tells us what we need to do by telling us what not to do. Negative commands. And these commands lay out three varying degrees of disobedience to God. Uh, people often forget that the Bible has beautiful language in addition to all its spiritual treasures it gives us. So I'll take you back to English class for a moment. These three phase, phrases use what we call parallelism. It's where they're all similarly structured to emphasize a point. And in the first verse we see it. Uh, if you go back just a couple of slides, Kelton, back to the, to the first part of the verse. First, the man who does not walk in the counsel with the ungodly, then the man who does not stand in the path of sinners, and finally the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Each verb in these statements draws the disobedient man in deeper, walking, going in the same direction, following, uh, passively meandering, possibly, and then we move to standing, stopping, listening, being becoming more entrenched, and then finally sitting, Settling down, choosing a place to reside. So each of those verbs gets more intense, gets more connected to this disobedience. Then we have three degrees of involvement, walking in counsel, stopping in the path and sitting in the seat. Each of these two 
denotes a deeper involvement as they progress. Counsel refers to attitude of the mind, a mental state of disobedience. Path refers to the behavior. So we go from thinking about it to then actually doing it. And then finally, uh, the sitting in the seat refers to collaboration with evil. Almost as if the person has gone from thinking like wickedness to doing wickedness to being wickedness. And then finally, there are three degrees of evil that the disobedient man is involved in. First, walking in the counsel of the wicked, which the Hebrew word for wicked here translates to loose or unstable, people who are loose from God, who just don't know. Maybe they just aren't aware of their own wickedness. Uh, They're guided by their own desires, untethered, so to speak. Secondly, standing in the path of sinners. So sinners represents those who know about God and his power, but choose not to follow him. It doesn't necessarily mean sinners like we think of it here, um, because we are all sinners. But here it refers to people who have chosen a path of sin, a way of life of sin, not just a slip up here and there that we seek forgiveness to and try again. It's where they live a deliberate, sinful lifestyle. And then finally, sitting in the seat of scoffers or the scornful. Here, that refers to the scornful people who don't follow the path of the Lord, but even worse, they mock all things holy. It isn't enough for them just to live in spiritual blindness or not abide by God's law. Then they have to scoff and attack that law, discourage others from following him. They mock and ridicule those that follow God. Um, and I hate to single anyone out, but when I read this, it immediately came to mind. There's a comedian entertainer, Bill Maher, the host of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. And, and, and this is kind of when I read about the scornful, the scoffers, like that, he immediately jumped out to me because he, he attacks religion consistently. So it's not enough just to not abide by or acknowledge that there's a God and there's a law, but then to actually discourage others, and it's one step further. Happiness, instead, comes from verse 2 in that chapter. But his delight, the happy man's, is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So here we have the basic blueprint for happiness and what brings unhappiness. Happiness comes from delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. Let's look at those words a little deeper. Think about that word delight. Delight. And what it means to delight in something. You cherish it. You protect it. You want to know all about it and you want to tell others all about it. We do this when big things happen in our lives. We have a new child. Right, we, we tell everybody about it. We get married. We get engaged. We get a new great job. You know, these are big life-changing events that we, we share with everybody. These, this is how we delight in things. To the writer of this psalm, the law of the Lord would have been the old Jewish Torah. But for modern Christians, we can expand this to include the teachings of Christ as well. So the law of the Lord in this context probably refers to Any and all instructions from the Lord, not just the big ones like the Ten Commandments. At first, this sounds very restrictive, but in reality, it's it's very freeing. It leads to happiness if we meditate on this law day and night. Now, meditating on his law simply means that we should be thinking about it, praying about it, singing about it, singing about God's law and all about all the other great things about God as well. A few weeks ago, and youth on Wednesday nights, we studied about this guy named William Cooper, 
who was a contemporary of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Cooper and Newton worked on quite a, a lot of uh, verses and hymns together. And Cooper had a lifelong battle with depression. He even attempted suicide on a number of occasions. Uh, and what saved him was what he called his sulking shack. It was this tiny shack. It was a little larger than an outhouse, basically, in his garden. And he would go and sit in this shack and just meditate on the garden around him and on the beauty around him and on the and on God above. And he he was in this shack lots of times when he wrote some very powerful uh, poetry and verses. So at first it may be difficult to understand why studying laws and instructions brings happiness. But we have to remember that who wrote these instructions, who gave us these instructions. This isn't just you know a VCR manual. Um, these aren't the rules to monopoly we're going to meditate on. This is the word of the Holy Father given to us by loving God. But it isn't enough just to study. You must follow as well. When I taught social studies and I taught uh, world history and, and human geography, we did a big unit on uh, religions, world religions, every year. So there was a point, I don't remember a lot of it anymore, it's been quite a few years when I taught that, but there was a point where I could tell you the five pillars of Islam and what the eightfold path is in Buddhism and um, the origin of some of the Hindu gods, and I, I could tell you this stuff. And and it also included in that unit were the basic tenets of Christianity and, and Judaism as well. And and I don't think that it's bad to to learn about what others believe because then it, it, you are able to communicate more effectively with with them when those conversations come up. But there's a big difference in studying and following, and that's a lesson to us as well. This is where the rubber meets the road. I can know all about God's word and his instructions, but if I choose not to live according to his will, then the fault is mine. The Bible says that even Lucifer himself knows the scriptures. So it's not enough to know the scriptures. We must follow them as well. It's, it's almost like in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, where it talks about love and all this. If you don't have the love, it's like a clinging symbol. Right? You can study all the scriptures, but if you don't follow them, it's like a clinging symbol. It's the same concept. God is a God of love, but he's also the God of truth, order, justice, structure. It might not be as glamorous, but these other attributes of God are just as important and just as beautiful. It's like there's a, at the risk of losing even more of my man card, um, I mean, I teach theater, I'm, I'm barely hanging on to it anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm going to quote a musical here. Yep, that's right. That's right. There's a musical, uh, My Fair Lady. Some of you may have seen it. But there's a song in this where Professor Higgins is talking about how he doesn't need a woman in his life. Women are nothing but trouble, um, which is a different sermon. Um, but <laughs> he talks about, he says, he says, she'll ask for your advice. Your reply will be concise. She'll listen very nicely, then go out and do precisely what she wants. And... And to me, that reminds me of myself sometimes when it comes to, to God and church. We come here, we listen on Sunday mornings, maybe on Wednesday nights. We listen very nicely, but then we go out and just do precisely what we want, right? We seek God's wisdom. We seek his, we say, God, why haven't you shown me this? Why haven't you answered my prayers, answered my questions when he has? 
We just had to, we had to listen and find it there in the book. Um, we, we go out and do precisely what we want. This is not the way of the Lord. This is not how we are called to live. Psalms 1 lays out the path of the righteous man, meditating on his word day and night. So happiness goes to the obedient man, the one willing to meditate on, study, and follow God's law. So what will that happiness look like? The passage continues and sets up another pair of opposites, the rewards of the righteous and the unrighteous. He, the happy man, shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. So these two verses continue to show the two sides of godliness and ungodliness. The happy man is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. What does it mean to be a tree? It means that you have deep roots in the word of, of the Lord. And that you are sturdy, especially when compared to the chaffs of wheat later in this passage. It means that the storms will come and go, the winds will howl, that the tempest will rage, but this tree will remain. And notice this tree was planted. It didn't just happen. This tree was planted, but not just planted. The verb there in Hebrew actually means transplanted, which if you think about it, has a much more beautiful message. Planting implies care and a plan for growth and nourishment, but transplanting means all of those things, but also the idea that this tree has been moved from one environment to a new environment, one that is more conducive to growth, nourishment, <laughs> nourishment and production. And isn't this the Christian experience? Didn't Christ find us in one spiritual place and move us to another? Didn't he move us from a world of sin and Satan into a, to a place beside the river so that we may grow? And the river in the passage isn't even really a river. The, the Hebrew word there means more like a, a channel cut for irrigation, almost like a ditch for irrigation. Not as picturesque, right? Surely a natural growing tree with roots going everywhere and a nice meandering river it would be a much better postcard, but... This image, to me, is more powerful of a transplanted tree beside an irrigation channel. Because it all shows his work. It all shows his care, his planning, his nourishment for us, that he has had a hand and continues to have a hand in our daily life. So, and the tree itself is an image that we see over and over again in the Bible, the olive tree and the fig tree especially. The large leaves of the fig tree providing shade and comfort and the sheer strength, tenacity, and production of the olive tree. Did you know there are dozens of olive trees in Israel today that date back to the time of Christ or even older? And what is even more fantastic is that, and shocking, is that these trees are still producing olives. They're still producing fruit. Think about all the empires, wars, social unrest that goes on in that part of the world, and these trees are still producing fruit. There's a lesson there for us, for sure. We still have a job to do, and that job is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ through service and love. The verse says that the happy man will bring forth fruit in its season, and that the leaves shall not wither. We are called to produce something. We are called to do something. I mentioned William Cooper earlier. And one of the quotes that, that they used in the study of his, well, some of the poetry that he created or, or prose he created, he said, existence is a strange bargain. Life owes us so little, we owe it everything. True happiness comes from squandering ourselves for a purpose. 
And I love that, that language, squandering ourselves for a purpose. We each have a ministry, a calling, a work to do. We have to find that purpose that we are willing to squander ourselves over. And, and your, your, your regular daily job is, is important and, and I love mine, but how do we use our daily nine to five to accentuate our ministry? How do we use that as a channel for our ministry? We are called to do more. We're called to minister in any way we can. So if the happy man dwells on God's law and ministers, and therefore it says prospers, probably not materially prospers, but spiritually prospers, what happens to the unhappy? Those who choose to walk in the counsel of wicked and sit in the seat of scoffers. The scripture says they, like chaff, will be scattered on the wind. And if you don't know, this is the reference to processing grains. They would toss up the grains and the lighter chaff would float and get blown off. The heavier grain would fall. So think about that image just blowing in the wind. Chaff is just not tethered. It's loose. Think about that compared to the tree that is rooted and firm and strong. Look around today and you will see chaff on the wind. People searching, going from one thing to the other, searching for answers, searching for happiness. Remember the strong tree of the believer, and here we have mere holes floating on the breeze, completely vulnerable to the world. Think about that Harvard, going back to that Harvard study I mentioned, they found that there were two things to happiness. Two, over 75 years, I said basically it boils down to these two things. One is relationships. Having someone there that you can share everything with. That it's, it's a, it is something to attach yourself to. Right? If you're having a hard time, this person can help you through it. That kind of thing. And the second thing was, some something larger than yourself, giving yourself over to some other purpose, having a purpose in your life. Those were the two things, 75 years, uh, and they, well, this is it, these two things. And I think most people could have told them that going in, but it took them 75 years to find out what most of us already knew, but that's okay. Um, so what will happen to these two different people, the happy and the unhappy, the righteous and the unrighteous? And I'm careful to say happy and unhappy because we all have bad days. We all go through phases. I mean, spiritually disconnected, spiritually unhappy, spiritually just, you know, untethered. Um, it is spelled out plainly in verses 5 and 6. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the ungodly shall perish. The ungodly will not be able to stand up, it says. And as I understand this, this is actually a Hebrew figure of speech. It's a Hebrew expression, which basically means the ungodly will be so overcome at the judgment of all their sins and wrongdoings that they will not even be able to stand, nor will they enter the kingdom of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Knows here means that just not just knowledge of or something like that, but it means he protects it. He watches over it. So the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. And again, this doesn't mean that trials won't come or bad things won't happen. This just means that we will be able to cling to God and His teachings and remain joyful. It doesn't mean that our hearts won't break for things that hurt us, especially when we see others hurting. But we will be that tree, even as things that might damage our leaves and branches occur, our roots will be safe and secure. Our lasting joy will be intact. I challenge you today to maybe worry a little less about being satisfied or happy with your life. 
It's a weird thing to ask, but just stop asking yourself if you're content or if you're happy. Stop asking yourself and just focus on studying and following God's word and see what happens. Focus on squandering your life for a purpose and just see what happens next. You will probably find lasting joy and inner peace that even if the world is crumbling around you, you still have strength and peace through our Savior Jesus Christ. Even if your circumstances don't improve at all, you will be, be, you will be better equipped for them. I encourage you to know what so many know already, that Christ is alive and well today. He is working to change lives, and he can transplant you to the place beside the channel he's cut for you, if you'll only let him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the words and the Psalms, Lord. We thank you for the encouragement that they offer us, that that your word offers us, Lord, this idea that we cling to it and it will guide us and direct us, Lord, that you will guide us and direct us. We ask all these things in your holy name. Amen.